Once you were human. Once the dappled golds and scarlets of the setting sun filled you with warmth and thoughts of home. But home is only a word now. Only one of the fragmented pieces that fill your cluttered, cloudy mind. Think, man-thing. Grope through the tangled morass inside your skull and touch the memories. Remember your name was Ted Salas, scientist, and you were running, pushing your sleek sports car through the deafening darkness, running from betrayal by the woman you loved. Remember the formula, the secret of the ultimate soldier. There had been only one way to keep it out of their hands. You had injected the only sample of your amazing chemical into your own bloodstream before you hit the water. The highly unstable solution was already beginning to react with the primal ooze that now clutched at you, greedily changing you, twisting you, turning you into a misshapen monstrosity. A man-thing now, filled with a burning desire for revenge on those who had caused this. The Comic Book Time Machine presents Swamp Things, comic book muckmen, bog beasts, and mud monsters. Episode 2, Man-Thing Origins, featuring Savage Tales number 1 and Astonishing Tales number 12 and 13. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Swamp Things, presented by the Comic Book Time Machine. I'm Ben, Ben Avery, and I am here because I am a fan of comic books. I am a writer of comic books and a reader of comic books, and I also happen to love swamp monsters. <laughs> I love those muck men, those bog beasts, those mud monsters. They're fun stories to me. Well, I mean, let's just get into it, okay? I mean, why am I even doing this podcast here about this stuff? Well, uh, part of it comes from this unnatural love, as I said, for swamp monsters and, and for... Uh, specifically, you know, um, movies and comic books about swamp monsters. Uh, I haven't read too many novels or short stories. I mean, obviously the one we talked about in the last uh, Swamp Things episode, but, um, you know, I, I have the Swamp Thing movie adaptation novel that I haven't read yet. Uh, but beyond that, I really haven't read too many things that include swamp monsters in in um in that format but comic books and movies i mean it, the swamp monster is a visual monster it's a monster that really you need to either see or visualize because of the writing because of the the putridness because of the slime because of the the mud the muck uh the the stuff of the swamp uh, to see that dripping and to see that, um, you know, just encasing a human being's form. It, it, it's a visual monster and it's a visual uh, metaphor in, in some ways, in, in a lot of ways, a visual metaphor of the human struggle and, you know, all those great things you can get into with horror stories and body horror and, um, and then specifically here with, with swamp monsters. Uh, but the other thing is, um, some of the world's greatest comic book creators have worked in this subgenre. This subgenre that, you know, you have horror 
stories, and then you have different kinds of horror stories. And you know, like I already mentioned, body horror, but um, you have the zombie horror. You have the the vampire kind of thing. You have the uh, the slasher kind of thing. And, and here you have this um, specific creature type. And with this specific creature type in comic books, you've had some of the world's greatest comic book artists and writers. Not all of them, okay? And and some of uh, you know some of the stuff that has come out of uh, different comic book companies hasn't been the greatest. Uh, but you've had Alan Moore, who is you know not one of my favorites, but I do acknowledge him as one of the greats. You've had Steve Gerber. Um, Bernie Wrightson, as far as art goes, I mean, he's the first person that snaps to mind as just one of those greats. Uh, Roy Thomas as a writer, Len Wein as a writer, um, Jerry Conway. I mean, yeah, all these guys, this is a podcast to celebrate not just the subgenre that I love, but to also celebrate great comic book storytelling. Or, in some cases, not celebrate it because it's not great, but celebrate it because it's fun. And, and that's the whole point here is, is I'm doing a show about comics that I love because it's fun to read comics and it's fun to talk about comics. So if you're first, if you haven't listened to the first one before, um, what kind of things are going to be covered here? Well, specifically, we're, I mean, we're going to be talking about lots of Swamp Thing and Man Thing as we go out. For this particular episode, we're going to be focusing in on Man-Thing and his first few stories. Um, I've already done some talk about Swamp Thing and his, his first few stories over at It's Midnight, the podcasting hour, which uh, you'll have um, some links to in the show notes here if you go to comicbooktimemachine.com. Uh, I've talked about the Swamp Thing, early Swamp Thing stories, and I've talked a little bit about this first Man-Thing story as well uh, with Ryan Daly over there, but... That's the kind of thing we're going to cover. It's really anything that touches on this particular type of creature. So for this episode, that means we're going to be uh, our primary topic is going to be Savage Tales number one and Astonishing Tales number twelve and thirteen, which features Lord of the Hidden Jungle, Kazar, and Savage Tales is that first Man Thing story, and Astonishing Tales twelve and thirteen is the second Man Thing story. Uh, we'll also be talking about a short comic book story, and in this case, it's one where I literally, <laughs> I do it, I judge a book by its cover, and for this comic book, I bought it as I was at a flea market looking through some long boxes, and I found this amazing cover with an incredible looking awesome swamp monster. I bought the comic not knowing what was inside, not caring what was inside. I just bought it because the cover was awesome. And I do that sometimes with, I just, I do that sometimes. Uh, a lot of times when I buy a comic because it has an awesome looking swamp monster on the cover, or I mean, even an awesome looking, you know, just cool sci-fi painting on the cover. Most of the time, either that cover has nothing to do with anything on the inside or the story that it has to do with has, it's just not great. <laughs> it's just not great. Just not good. Uh, in this case, I was so surprised. I was so surprised when I read the story, and I, I feel like in some ways I'm I'm just kind of taking this great one and just starting off with it. Um, I mean, we did that Bernie Wrightson one that was incredible and awesome last time, and this one I, I shouldn't have said it, but I, I've said it already. Now you know I like it, um, but it's a great short story. Now for the short story, be aware I am spoiling it. I will spoil that story, but it's cool. It's a very cool story. 
The other thing I do is the third segment, which is uh, to talk about Swamp Monsters on the screen. Big screen, small screen, uh, I guess even the video game screen. I mean, but TVs, movies. uh, And so for this episode, I'm going to be taking a little bit of a different tack. I'm not going to be talking about, well, let's put it this way. I'm going to be talking about Man-Thing in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And if you know uh, my other podcasting stuff that I do, I do a podcast called Welcome to Level 7 that is about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so I'm going to be talking about Man-Thing in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So there's my teaser. Now, for the record, I am not going to be talking about the Man-Thing movie. I just want to make sure that that's clear. I maybe never will be talking about the Man-Thing movie. And I also may never be talking about the current Man-Thing comic book miniseries that just wrapped up. Just, yeah. So we're going to get started with our main topic right after I play this podcast promo. It's midnight. The podcasting hour. Hello, listeners. It's your friend, PJ Frightful. That's PJ, as in podcast jockey, and I'm dropping dreadful new episodes every two weeks. When the clock strikes midnight, the podcasting hour shines a candle on the dark corners of DC Comics. Those supernatural sagas of Swamp Thing, Dead Man, The Spectre, and more. The podcasting hour. It's a rotating anthology series boasting the terrifying talents of Ryan Daly, Rob Kelly, Paul Hicks, Ben Avery, Doug Zavisha, and other unfortunate souls. Prepare for the unexpected, open a doorway to nightmare, and enter the houses of mystery and secrets. The moon is full, and the dark spirits are rising. For it's midnight, the podcasting hour. Coming this Halloween, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beware. Okay, so that was a promo from Midnight, the podcasting hour, which I was just talking about, where I got to go on and talk with Ryan Daly about Swamp Thing comic books, which was so much fun. So much fun to do, and I hope it shows in the episodes that I was a part of. But it's a cool podcast even when I'm not a part of it, so just throwing it out there that if you like horror comics, you're going to love that podcast. So uh, back to Man-Thing, though, because that's what we're going to talk about today. Savage Tales and Astonishing Tales, number 12 and 13. And Savage Tales features the origin of Man-Thing. Now, Savage Tales was a magazine that... um, was a black and white magazine that featured uh, Conan on the on the cover, and it featured a whole bunch of other features. Um, but the Man Thing origin story happens to be one of the short stories that was featured in the comic book. Now we're not going to we're not going to get not going to get in, gonna get, in, get into the whole um, which came first, Swamp Thing or Man Thing? I mean, Man Thing hit shelves first but swamp thing was possibly in production before then and i actually want to throw in a third contender for um, not for what was first but for uh complicating the issue of why things happened or or when why things happened when they happened but first let's talk about this story uh the story is 
it starts with a lonely man thing and he's stalking the Everglades and he's fighting off alligators from eating cranes and he's also fighting to remember his memories and the memories come but they come barely to him he has vague impressions of his earlier life back when he was Ted Salas a scientist working on unlocking the secrets of the super soldier serum and what progress he has made exists in two places one is a single sample and the other is his brain but he reveals to his girlfriend that he's actually racked with guilt uh, his girlfriend Ellen Brandt he's racked with guilt for his other work has already been used in war to kill many people and now his work will be used to do the same thing. His new work will be used to kill more people. Ellen uh, comforts him, but she's not there truly because she's his girlfriend. Uh, in fact, she's actually doesn't really like him at all. <laughs> she is there uh, to steal those secrets. She's a bad guy. <laughs> and... Um, she works for some very bad men who come to the lab where uh, Ted Salas is beaten up as they ask for the formula and he escapes them. And as he speeds away in his sports car, he injects himself with the formula in a last ditch effort to keep it out of their hands. But he crashes into the swamp and before he can die, he merges with the swamp and he becomes this thing, this thing that's vaguely a man uh, a man thing, if you would. <laughs> they take off and they come after him, but then he comes at them in his new form and he kills the men and he touches Ellen's face and and burns her face and, and leaves her just just behind him um, in pain and and burning and, and crying. And it's not good situation for Ellen, but there is one greater victim in all of this, and that is Ted Salas's own humanity, because he's a monster now. And so, no surprise, I love this story. And yes, it is cliche. It is. I think it was cliche when it was written. Uh, it's cliche now, for sure. Uh, it's it's all about the person who seeks out the the mysteries of the universe and ends up paying the price, and paying the price by becoming a a monster. Um, I mean, my mind automatically just goes to the fly, you know, where they, they were finding out the, the secret to matter transportation through space, you know, basically a, a transporter from Star Trek. That's what they're creating. And, and what happens? Well, they end up becoming a monster because they're dabbling in things they should not be dabbling in or doing things that, that should be just left alone. But, it's not always about the what in the story. And, and this is something I, t I talk about often in other podcasts. I can't remember how much or when I've talked about it on comic book time machine or, or what it's about the how, how is the story told? How does it connect with you emotionally? How does it connect with you in a comic book form visually? And it is done in a beautiful way. It is done in a way that transcend, uh, transcends the, the horror story, that transcends the beats of, uh, you know, this, I'm going to transform into a monster. It, it transcends all of that. It, it's something completely different and something completely new. And, you know, I want to give huge, huge props to the, the creators on this. They did a great, great job of telling and selling the story. I, I think we'll, we'll come back to these people, but, uh, 
it's Roy Thomas and Gray Morrow, and it was done Marvel method. Roy, Roy Thomas did the outline. Gray Morrow did the the artwork, and then uh, I believe Jerry Conway was brought in to do the the dialogue after the the thing was drawn and, and done. And it's just, uh, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll go ahead and get into it now. I was going to save uh, you know some of the the value judgment stuff until after I talked about uh, all the stories, but uh, it's just an incredible black and white story. Beautiful drawings of the Everglades and and incredible renderings of Man Thing uh, wrestling an alligator and you know he he's drawn as good as he's ever going to be drawn in some ways. Uh, I mean, people will come to this level of of drawing the character, drawing the monster, but um, this kind of I mean, this definitely sets the standard for what this creature is supposed to look like and going to look like, and he doesn't change much from this. Uh, Especially if you take into account, um, you know, just just different colors. I, I've seen variations on the creature in in different color coloring. You know, he's he's white for a little while and stuff like that. But in this black and white form, it looks great. It, it looks amazing. Uh, this is rated M, uh, right on the cover of the magazine. It's it's just bright as as day. Uh, just this huge box that says um, it's rated M for mature readers. Because of, uh, well, not just this story, because of the other stories as well. Uh, but in this story, there is some, uh, the, the girlfriend wears some very revealing clothing, which actually in some reprints I've seen, they've taken care of it. And in others, they have left it. And uh, so it was a surprise to me when I read one reprint that you could actually see um, much more skin than I was expecting to have seen. But uh, the other thing that you have in the story is the, this ending where you have the narrator saying, you got your super soldier, your indestructible killer. Um, but then it talks about the price being uh, you. You, know, you. you got it, but the price was, was your own soul. And, you know, getting into that, you know, we, we're here in 71. I mean, we're, we've got the Vietnam War thing going on and you have him complaining that stuff that he had created has killed people, but he's gone ahead and done it. And he's still working and, and working on these kind of things. And so you kind of get this idea. One of the, the, the themes you could pull out of this story is just this idea of him becoming a monster because of the things that he's working on. And, you know, it's, it's not so much tampering, you know, or going into God's domain, like with the transporter and the fly, but it's more he has become a monster because he is doing monstrous things as a human. And it's, it's a very interesting uh, spin inside the story to have have them at the end say you got your super soldier there it is this monster and it only cost you your soul and I think I think it's a great you know it's it's that horror movie metaphor thing where you know when you watch a horror movie a lot of the best horror movies aren't necessarily written and created to have the metaphor the metaphor just kind of ends up happening because we are humans and when we watch stories about other humans the good stories that connect with us are stories that reflect our experience as humans, our experience emotionally, our experience uh, spiritually, our experience uh, psychologically. I mean, it reflects that. And so in this story, as I was reading it this last, this most recent time anyway, it really stuck out to me is you have this guy who's doing these things that he really doesn't feel comfortable doing. And now he's paying the price, even though he started to feel that guilt but in some ways, it's it's too late. He's starting to say, I've done something wrong. And now he 
is paying the price, and he is paying the price, and it's the ultimate price as he gives up his humanity. Now, the other thing that's really interesting when you look at future stories is he's drawn to humanity. He's drawn to the emotions of humans, and there's something to be said there for the idea of him becoming this monster as penance for his sins, his sins being creating things that kill people. Uh, the, the penance there is that he is he becomes um, drawn to humanity, maybe even drawn to a humanity that he lacks or that he uh, was just starting to regain. Uh, and so, I mean, there's, there's lots of ways you can, you know, maybe analyze the story and stuff, but the, the biggest way is just to, again, experience the story of another human being through your own experience and, so here we have, you know, this guy. Uh, the other thing that comes out of this is uh, the betrayal by by Ellen and how she is just there to for the money. You know, she is there as a spy uh, who is there to um, just basically keep him busy and steal from him and and make sure, you know, and, and the way she does this is not by uh, – becoming a scientific partner with him, but by becoming, um, his, his girlfriend, you know, and, and by using that and, and kind of, again, this kind of gets into that humanity where he is alone in the world as a monster. Well, in some ways it's, he's also alone in the world, uh, as a, as a human or was alone in the world as a human. And so here you have, uh, Ellen, who you know comes in and, and is this uh, beautiful woman who takes an interest in him, and then when you know everything's revealed, she's like, I, I, "You think I would really ever spend time with someone like you if I didn't have something, you know, some other reason?" Well, that other reason that she has is the possibility of getting money out of it, and so it's it's there, there's there's depth that can be read into the story. Some some of the depth might be coming from me putting it into the story, but. Uh, anyway, it's it's a great little short story, and it's the kind of thing. I mean, if it didn't become what it became, Man Thing, <laughs> uh, be, being uh, uh, an ongoing character, uh, it's the kind of thing that I would cover in in the short stories that we talk about at the end of these episodes. So, anyway, that is Savage Tales number one. So, moving on to Astonishing Tales number twelve. And 13, here you have uh, Kazar, Lord of the Hidden Jungle. Uh, now, this book was originally a double feature that was shared with Dr. Doom around issue eight or nine. I'm not sure, and I, I don't have it in my notes here. And um, honestly, I'm not recording at home. So I'm, I'm not sitting on the back porch of a really nice uh, cabin in the woods this time. But uh, anyway. Uh, Dr. Doom left the book around eight or nine. Uh, my understanding is he cited creative differences and he and Kazar were not getting along. Dr. Doom contended that it was him who drew people to the book, whereas Kazar said it was him because he was more, more handsome and he was the one that when people would see on the street, they would ask for his autograph and Dr. Doom, they would usually, you know, give a wide berth to. And so, uh, they just, they just didn't get along well. And so Dr. Doom left the book and then Kazar was able to have more, um, some more longer stories involved in there and, it ended up being a really, a really good thing for Kazar. Doctor Doom continued to do character work as you know, vi a villain with uh, 
terrible, terrible disfigured face and mask. And and unfortunately, though, I mean, Kazar didn't quite fade into obscurity. But, you know, he's kind of a one-note actor. He was only able to do the jungle man thing. And whereas Doctor Doom was only doing the evil villain thing, Doctor Doom also was able to get, you know, some some form of empathy and sympathy in some of his stories. And and he just, he just turned out to be... Um, the more talented of the two. And so in, in this case, it was talent that ultimately won out. But when it came to Astonishing Tales at the time, um, I'm just going to stop right there. That was a little bit too long of a bit. And yeah, we're going to we're just get back to the story. Let's get back to the story. So anyway, uh, after the removal of Dr. Doom, uh, for whatever the circumstances may have been, uh, let's not get too inside Hollywood, right? Um, Kazar was able to have some some longer stories, full length uh, stories, and uh, Bobby Morse was a character that was introduced as a Kazar supporting cast. And you may know Bobby Morse's name because that is uh, Mockingbird, who is an Avenger and who was a uh, the wife of Hawkeye for a while, and who um, was also an, an agent of of Shield in in the comics and and on the screen. And so. Um, there's there's more to Kazar than just being a fake Tarzan. Uh, I'm not really a big fan of the character Kazar. Uh, I just I've come across them in a few places. I have some Kazar comics that came in blind packs. Actually, uh, if you've listened to Comic Book Time Machine, you know that I I really like the surprise blind packs where you know you get the um, the poly bag that has four three or four comics in it, and you can see the one on the front, you can see the one on the back, but you can't see the ones in the middle. And Meyer had some blind packs 10, 15 years ago, and I, I bought them, and they had a couple Kazar issues in there. I haven't read them. I just came across them uh, a couple days ago when I was cleaning out my closet, and I looked at the covers and thought, oh, that's that's neat, and here I'm going to – I knew I was going to be talking about this, but – uh, he, he's just not a character that I've tried to follow at all. I do know he's part of the Savage Land, though, which um, his first appearance was – at least his first appearance as he appears in Marvel continuity now – was in X-Men where he was part of their visit to the Savage Land, which is this uh, spot in the, I believe this is in Antarctica, where you go and you, the ice, it, there's a lost world. You know, that's that's what it is. It's, it's uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's lost world, which is this spot that is a paradise amidst the mountainous craggy ice. And it's this jungle paradise where you have uh, dinosaurs are still roaming the the land and you know that kind of thing. And um, he lives there with his giant saber tooth Azul, and I, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but it doesn't matter. Uh, we're going to talk about the saber tooth, but not much. And I might just skip using his name, which is what I do with people in real life is if I can't pronounce their name, I just skip using their name. And, you know, my job, I work with children. I'm just going to say the greatest invention ever is the name tag because then you can just read the name, but then you still get names where you just can't pronounce it. So I just avoid using their name, which is not the greatest thing. People love you, you using their name. It, you know, it's identity and that kind of thing. Anyway, this cat's not going to care because it's not even real and it's cat. So there it is. I've seen him pop up. I've seen Kazar pop up. Uh, but he just never really caught on with me, and I, I never really cared about him enough to follow him. But when he shows up, it's interesting. So these two issues, number 12 and 13, mark the second and third appearance of Man-Thing after Savage Tales number one. The interesting thing about this is that 
part of the story from issue number 12 is actually a repurposing of the, what was intended to be in Savage Tales issue number two. And we'll, we'll talk about that after we talk about the synopsis. Like I said before, Man-Thing's origin story and, and, all, and some of the details behind a lot of what we're going to be talking about here as far as creation and, and creators, uh, we, I talked about in Midnight, the podcasting hour episodes number two and, and seven. And, and, and in those stories, we, we get it a lot into the background and um, kind of investigate the theories of who came up with what first and who, you know, which came first, the man thing or the swamp thing. And, um, but just to just quickly get through that, um, Len Wein wrote the swamp thing story. And then after that was, after that came out, um, he then wrote the second man thing story for Savage Tales number two, which wasn't going to be published and, and didn't get published uh, in Savage Tales number two, because Savage Tales number two wasn't actually published until much later. And when they published that second issue, they changed the format of, of well, not the format, but changed the genre basically and turned it into kind of a war book. And so anyway, after that second story of Man Thing he wrote, he turned around and began writing the regular series of Swamp Thing, which, which uh, as you'll find out if you listen to those um, uh, Midnight the Podcasting Hour episodes, it was basically a reboot. And they started over and took all these elements from the Swamp Thing, but then they also kind of followed the pattern of Man Thing and his origin story. But that was Len Wein writing that. And so... Um, anyway, I mean, it's kind of convoluted and it's, you know, just kind of wraps around itself. Um, and then you get Roy Thomas involved, Roy Thomas, uh, who wrote the first, um, man thing outline. And then he's the one who scripted, um, astonishing tales 12 and 13. And so you have this kind of strange little thing here where you have a Kazar story in issue number 12 that stops and becomes a man thing um, side story. Uh, they just insert a man thing story. Uh, and then in issue 13, you kind of, it all wraps around itself and you kind of find out why, uh, why is it happening this way? So anyway, um, here's, here's the story, the, the story from, um, well, issue 12 and 13. Kazar is brought to the Everglades by Bobby Morse, who is a scientist, and she had worked on the same project as Ted Salas, and now she wants Kazar to help her find Ted Salas before the evil agents of AIM do. He's a jungle man, and so of course, he can track a missing person in the swamp. So we get some savage man versus civilized authorities in the airport. And uh, then we move into the Everglades where their helicopter gets shot down by AIM. And Kazar gets to fight some alligators. And Zabu also gets to fight some alligators. And then they visit Dr. Calvin, who is in the hospital after a gunshot wound put her in a coma. And the only thing that would happen for her was she would come out of the coma and say Ted Salas or man thing. And then she'd go back into the coma. And, and she's just in and out like that, but she's, she's not uh, coherent. Then we see that outside the window is a slime-covered eavesdropper. It's Man-Thing. And our narrator speaks to Man-Thing in that second-person narration. 
telling him about his backstory and then also indirectly telling us what happened after the events of Savage Tales number one. So we get a flashback told in black, white, and yellow. Man-Thing comes across this old woman in the flashback who is being followed by an angry man who is intent on killing her because she's this old witch and has you know brought curses or something on, on the people of the area. But Man-Thing gets in the way and touches the arm of the young man. And it burns because the man's scared. And so then Man-Thing follows the old woman because there's something about her that suggests she can help. And that something might be because she's a witch and maybe she could use her magic to help him or something. Or it could be because she is actually a scientist who is helping continue the work on the super soldier serum that Ted Salas had been working on, uh, which is actually the case. Again, it's that fuzzy memory that he has because he's no longer man. He is monster. Uh, But outside the installation where they are doing their work, there's a crowd and these these people are bad news because one of them is getting them riled up. Now that first guy who had accused Dr. Calvin of being a witch in the hospital has now already had his arm amputated because of the touch from the man thing. And this other guy is angry and he is riling up the people and then he actually takes Bobby Morse hostage, but man thing intervenes and battles the townspeople. After that whole conflict kind of resolves itself, Dr. Calvin recognizes some humanity in Man-Thing. But when she approaches and tries to offer help, he, she's shot in the back. And Man-Thing screams out this cry of agony and leaves to go back into the swamp. So back in the present day, in our main story, he has been drawn to Dr. Calvin's hospital room because she's actually still alive. And Kazar from inside smells man thing and crashes through the window to chase man thing. But as man thing leaves this place, uh, he's been caught in a trap by aim, a pit trap and Kazar finds aim and decides to protect whatever is in the pit simply because aim is trying to hurt it. But then he finds himself thrown into the pit with man thing. And we have our cliffhanger as Kazar faces down man thing in the pit now this battle could end poorly for him but as we move into issue 13 we find out that kazar does not know fear and so he does not burn when the man thing touches him but man thing burns when aim uses a laser on him which puts him out of commission but kazar and zabu defeat the aim agents and then dr calvin um back back in the the hospital dr calvin and one of the scientists uh bobby morris's fiance actually are are kidnapped and so those who are left behind get man thing into a cage uh pull him out of the pit it's a big muscular scene for kazar where you know five guys couldn't lift him up but kazar grabs the rope and he's he just pulls him up all by himself They now interrogate the guy who shot Dr. Calvin, and he claims he was just trying to kill the witch, but Kazar threatens the guy to set his saber-toothed tiger on him, and the guy talks and tells them where Ames' headquarters, their their hideout is, and Kazar and friends go to rescue them. They storm the secret underground base, and they find Dr. Calvin, but they also find 
huge betrayal for Bobby because her fiance is actually one of the bad guys. But as they're confronting him, Man-Thing bursts through the wall and before uh, this bad guy can follow through on killing Dr. Calvin or Bobby Morris or both, um, Man-Thing grabs him and makes him burn, of course. And then Man-Thing motions for Kazar to take Dr. Calvin and leave with Bobby. And then Man-Thing himself activates the self-destruct switch, killing all of the AIM scientists and seemingly killing himself. So that's our, our second story. Now, uh, I mentioned that... I, mean, I shouldn't say second story. That's actually our third story. There's three stories here with three different teams of people. We have the Jerry Conway and Roy Thomas and Gray Morrow uh, origin story. We have the, uh, the Len Wein and Neil Adams doing the, um, the, the flashback story. And then we have uh, the Roy Thomas and John Bushima. Uh, Bushima, Bushima. I don't know how to say that name. I'm bad with names, like I said before. But we have them. <laughs> we have their story, which is the, the Kazar section. And so we have we have, we got three stories for for the price of one in this podcast or in this segment of the podcast, I should say. Um, it's kind of fun because some of the flashback stuff, where they, um, you know, they always would have the editor give you know a footnote telling you where to find this story, and when they do the flashback and they're doing all this uh, narration that's giving us information that happened in the Savage Tale story, it actually says, um, you know, in the the short story uh, in the one and only Savage Tales number one, um, because it was it was the only one. So anyway, um, it's a cool splash page panel for a cliffhanger here in issue number 12, leading into issue number 13. There's, like I said, in the, the preamble of this episode, there's just a ton of talent here. You have Jerry Conway, you have Roy Thomas, you have Len Wein, you have Roy, uh, Roy Thomas again, you have um, Neil Adams, you have Gray Morrow. You, it's it's just an incredible amount of talent in what could be a, a throwaway story of these, you know, two issues of Kazar. I mean, this is not an A-list character. I mean, the title character of the book is not an A-list character. And then you have this other, you know, monster thing from a black and white magazine, not even a regular comic that was on the stands, but a black and white magazine that really wasn't intended for any, you know, kids to be consuming. But, um, you have now that you know kind of C-list or D-list character and just the talent. And, and some of these people are at the beginning of, of their careers or they're you know, in, in the middle you know, or they haven't really achieved the status of, of giants in the industry. But it's, it's good stuff. Now there are I, – I have some complaints. I mean the cover for issue number 12 is – it's an it's a great adventure story cover. You have Kazar um, fighting an alligator, uh, holding the jaw. You know he's behind the alligator's head and he's holding the jaw up with one arm, 
and pushing the jaw down with his other arm. In the background, you have um, his saber-toothed tiger fighting another alligator. And then you have the downed helicopter, and you have uh, Bobby Morse and her fiancé trying to escape the helicopter. But they have four more alligators swimming down toward them. Issue 13's cover is not great. <laughs> it's not very good. You have the in the background, in the swamp, you have these AIM agents that you might not even notice because they're um, just colored as background. You have Man-Thing lifting Kazar over his head while uh, uh, the, the saber-toothed tiger is running toward Man-Thing. And Man-Thing's head is just this tiny, little tiny head. He has these little, or these big, I should say, cute puppy dog eyes. Um, but he has the... You know, the, the classic um, carrot dangly things that, that are hanging off of his face. And he has this kind of furry, mossy texture to his body. But, I mean, the elements are there. But this is not a great rendering of Man-Thing, in my opinion. Um, it, it's not. and <laughs> It's just, it is what it is, you know. I mean, if this was the character... And this was a design that they would stick with for the regular design. Nah, not great. Not great. But the artwork inside is is pretty good. And for issue number um, issue number 13, it's John Bishama. I'm saying it wrong. I know I am. Um, and then you have Rich, Rich Buckler. And, and the artwork inside is good. It is good. And... It is exciting and it's energetic and it's it's muscular. Um, the man thing himself is this hulking beast of a creature, and you know there's this is one where you have the you have two artists doing the rendering of of the character and it's different in in both in the Neil Adams artwork and in the John Buscema artwork, but. Um, you can tell now they're trying to figure out from the first appearance, like how, what does this character look like and how do you draw it? <laughs> you know, when you're not the person who invented the character, how do you draw it? And it's good. I, I really do think it's good. I, I, I enjoy it. Uh, so, as, you know, I'm looking at my judgment of this, uh, the creature, because uh, that's what I do. I judge creature, cover, and content. And the creature is early man thing. All the elements are there. All the artists do well interpreting a design that's only appeared once. The cover, because I, like I say, I do judge a book by its cover. Um, but the question is, is it poster worthy? And the cover, anyway, that gets Man Thing on the cover. I mean, of the three comics that we are looking at, only he's only on one of these covers. And so the Kazar uh, cover, the Astonishing Tales issue number thirteen. You know, we have those puppy dog eyes and. You know, the it's kind of funny though because uh, issue 12's cover actually looks like a panel um, from the Man Thing's previous appearance, where he's fighting alligators. If you replace Kazar with with Man Thing, you would have a, a pretty good cover, I think, as long as they got the design right. Um, of the three, though, one only has the Swamp Monster, and that one's not great. The content, though, uh, as far as Savage Tales go, that's an incredible work of a short story. It's incredible short story writing. It's incredible short story art. And I recommend if you like wonderful artwork and 1970s magazine style realism in the artwork. And if you like those short horror stories, the Kazar issues, the Astonishing Tales issues are not bad. And um, one thing to appreciate here is that it does set up the whole whatever knows fear idea. It's not a deep story, though. It's a decent story, but not a deep story. 
Uh, I recommend it, though, if you want to get the whole Man-Thing mythos. And, you know, so if you buy the Omnibus or buy the um, the collected editions, I think they did a two-volume collected edition or something like that, and, and it has this, this in there, obviously you read it, but... Um, I wouldn't go seeking these seeking these out necessarily. Now, I, I do want to trot out one more thing in the ongoing man-thing, swamp-thing, which-came-first-chicken-or-the-egg thing, and that is this. Uh, man-thing's origin story was in Savage Tales, which was a black-and-white magazine that only went one issue, and then, like I said, later on they came back with it, and it was something else altogether. But... In an article by John Cook, John B. Cook, in Swamp Men, uh, the Tomorrow's production about <laughs> swamp monsters and stuff, uh, which is an incredible book, incredible resource, they talk about a magazine called Psycho that was published by a publisher called Skywald. Skywald being a publisher that was formed by Sol Brodsky and um, Israel Waldman, who were Marvel people before they started this company. Now, at the time, black and white horror magazines, that was that was Warren publishing that was really dominating in that area. And Marvel and DC were clearly dominating in the color comics area. Uh, now, Skywald tried to get into the color comics thing and they really didn't do well, but they did have some success with the black and white magazines. But when they were getting started, um, in this article... Uh, John B. Cook says that Stan Lee wanted to get in on this M for Mature Readers kind of thing. And I wonder, I wonder if they found out about what Skywald was doing with Psycho Magazine. Because, and again, looking at the timeline here, um, you have Savage Tales, the on-sale date, according to Mike's Amazing World, is January of 1971 and then you have house of secrets the on sale date according to mike's amazing world of comics is april 1st of 1971 and then you have this magazine called psycho which in the second issue introduces the horrible heap now roy thomas worked with stan lee and stan lee was the one who who, he said i know we're going to do this savage tales magazine and i want you to do a thing called man thing and he gave him the name and just the brief idea of what the creature was supposed to be um they in various places where i've seen not just this article it's been said that both stan lee and roy thomas knew about the heap and even some of man things design was intentionally referencing that original classic heap character but i wonder if they found out that heap was going to be in psycho these recurring characters were going to be in psycho and you know stanley wanted to get in on that action already but i wonder if he wanted to get in on the action to you know just help <laughs> really to help Skywald fail because they would have, you know, Marvel materials on the market. And so there's a part of me that says maybe Man-Thing isn't just inspired by the original heap, but maybe Man-Thing was spurred on by the knowledge of the heap appearing as a character in the pages of Psycho. No one 
says this. Uh, this is just me kind of wondering if there's maybe some ulterior motives going on there when Stan Lee basically comes to Roy Thomas and says, I want you to do something really like the heap uh, without saying it in as many words. Um, because Psycho with the heap was kind of the first 70s swamp monster. So anyway, that's just me. I'm projecting and there's nothing in interviews that suggests this thing other than that Stanley wanted to get in on the black, black and white uh, magazine market. So yeah, that is uh, Man Thing's origins. And from here, uh, it's time for us to move on to the, the short story selection after a quick podcast promo, of course. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which, at this very moment, still prevails and could, at any time, lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi, folks. Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. Okay, so I mentioned my comic book origin for this um, issue that I'm about to talk about now that has a short story, a one-shot short story about a swamp monster, uh, is basically I was looking at comics in a, um, a flea market. Actually, not so much a flea market, more a garage sale. It's a giant garage sale. It's inside a warehouse, and there's all these people who have their own booth. And I mean, it's basically an antique store, but not quite as classy as an antique store uh, or a flea market, but a little more temperature controlled than an outdoor flea market but anyway there's this booth and i was going through the comics and just kind of looking just browsing not looking for anything in particular but this stuck out as i was flipping through the long box and the cover it's uh the the comic book is called haunted and on the cover you have this nasty looking tentacled uh swamp monster and facing off with this swamp monster is just a guy standing on the edge of the water. Um, we're just looking at him from behind. And so we see his, you know, a little bit of, of a definition of his back muscles, but you also see his arm muscles in the shadows and he's holding a shovel and he's just standing defiantly facing down this tentacled swamp monster. And there's text on the front. It says Ezekiel dreaded the hideous creature rising from the ancient slime, but it had to be destroyed. And there was only one 
unthinkable way. It's in the lure of the swamp. And that is the story that we are going to be getting into here. Now, this book, Haunted, this is issue number eight. And the cover date is October 1972. I always like finding October cover dates because that's my birthday. Uh, Maybe you don't feel this way, but to me, it's almost like a little bit of a birthday present when there's a cover date of October on there just because it's it's just a thing. It's just a thing with me. Anyway, the uh, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the approximate on sale date is August 1st of 1972, which if you are went ahead and listened to those episodes, like I said, of um, Midnight, the podcasting hour, and no, he is not paying me every time I say this, but um, I mean, I wouldn't turn him down, but I, yeah, anyway. Um, August 10th, 1972 is the on sale date of Swamp Thing number one. Anyway, Haunted was a horror anthology book and it lasted about 75 issues, I think. And the interesting thing to me about this particular issue is uh, this is issue number eight, but then issue number 40 has the exact same cover. Uh, now, the, uh, by that time, they had changed the name to Baron Werewolf, but it's spelled W E I R W U L F. Baron Werewolf's Haunted Library, and it was hosted by Baron Werewolf instead of this impy little imp guy that's in in this one. But uh, I don't know if they changed the artwork to add in Baron Werewolf instead of impy because impy appears as a narrator in the story, and that's one thing I don't like about horror anthologies is when the you know Kane or Abel or whoever appears in the story. And I was really glad that in that short story uh, from. Um, House of Secrets that Abel or Kane, whichever one, didn't appear in the Swamp Thing story. Uh, but in, in this MP, he actually has a panel all to himself just in the middle to help um, transition and give some exposition. But anyway, uh, they apparently reprinted at least the story. I don't know if they reprinted the entire issue, but I just find that really interesting. And the cover itself, this is the better of the covers, uh, I believe, because of the way Charlton was doing their um, their uh, publisher's information on the cover. It's more Marvel-y, I guess. Uh, but this one has Haunted, and it's uh, in issue eight. There's just this kind of splash around Haunted, and it just says all new. And then you have the artwork, and the, the background is this kind of grayish sky background, whereas on the issue number 40, it's all pink. The background is just pink, which makes the swamp monster kind of pop out. But what's nice about this is you have this gray background in the top third behind the swamp monster. You have this kind of uh, it's a it's a rounded dome creature with the tentacles that's in the middle. And then underneath it, in the bottom third, you have the blues and grays and whites of the water. And then along the bottom eighth, you have the the black of the ground and the grass that goes up into that uh, water. And you have the guy standing on that. And so then as you're looking, the guy is directly center. Um, and he he takes up from you know the bottom eighth up until about the halfway point. At about the halfway point also on the creature is where the eyes are. And the eyes are red and it, that that just draws your eye. Now, if you look at this um, Baron Werewolf's Haunted Library version on you know issue forty, that pink background is what really kind of pulls my eye, and it pulls my eye away from the monster's eyes. Now, eyes on a comic book cover that is naturally you know those that if that's the dominant thing, even if it's not it, on the 
dominant figure. The eyes are what your eyes are, will be attracted to. Your eyes will also follow the eyes of the, uh, the character that's on the cover of a book. So you'll look at the character's face, see where the eyes are going. And that's just natural. I mean, that's just the way our brain works is we look for people's eyes and we look for animals' eyes to see, you know, where are they looking? What are they looking for? Um, and so that's, you know, you want to catch people's uh, attention on a cover, you you put eyes. And so that's why it's just this big, giant, lurking thing um, and and these these two giant red pupiled eyes that are looking at this guy that's that's right there. Uh, the cover design, it just drew me in and just made me say i'm I'm buying this comic. <laughs> and um, everything in the booth was a some percentage off or whatever. and I felt like, okay, this is it brought it down enough that I felt like I, I I can buy this comic book. I don't buy collector's items. Old comics are great, but expensive old comics to me are not. But this, like I said, there was a discount that brought down the price under to a point where I was like, yeah, I'm totally going to get this. And um, yeah, that's what pulled me in. Now, there are a few different stories in there. I don't know much about the creators of these stories. Uh, one of them, I can tell just by looking at it and reading through it, that's Ditko's artwork, uh, Steve Ditko. Um, and it's none of the stories are memorable. The Ditko story looks great, but it's not. Uh, I didn't remember what it was about until I finally was kind of flipping through it again and, and getting back to the end. And then there's this kind of uh, gothic horror uh, thing, but it's about this kind of swinging 70s girl and uh, in a gothic horror situation setting. Um, again, did not really leave a mark on me as far as what was it about, what happened. But here's what did happen. Uh, this story, Lure of the Swamp, I, I'm just going to be honest. There are, like I said, a number of swamp monster stories that I've read because of the cover. And a lot of times, any time I buy a comic book, especially an anthology comic book, based on just looking at the cover and saying that's really cool, a lot of times what's inside does not match up with the coolness of what's outside. Okay, This was an exception because the story is exceptional it's a really well done story it takes place in the swamp and it's about this man and this woman ezekiel and um mora mora is his wife and ezekiel is out looking for lena and we don't know who lena is but we get the impression through the context here this is their daughter and she has gone missing and one night, you know, she's missing in the swamp and they've been looking for her and looking for her and they can't find her. And then one night Mara could not sleep and she heard, hears the voice of her daughter. And I am going to kind of spoil the story here, but she hears the voice of her daughter. She goes out to answer the call of her daughter and she runs into the mists of the swamp and Ezekiel can't find her. And so now he's lost both his wife and his daughter. He goes out looking for her and realizes she's just gone in the swamp and figures both of them were savvy enough that it must have been some sort of creature that got them. And so he goes out, and this is where um, Impy gives some <laughs> exposition because Impy says, uh, before night fell, Zeke went into town and brought and bought poison Your rat for rats, he said, but Zeke bought enough to kill all the rats in the state of Georgia. He leaves some bait with the rat poison in it, um, outside but then it doesn't get eaten and so he wonders if the creature just wants something that's alive and so he sharpens his axe and goes out and looks again and just like 
Mara saw and heard Lena, Zeke, Zeke, Ezekiel sees and hears Mora. But then as they embrace, he sees this giant swamp monster come up. And it turns out that Mora is attached to one of the tentacles and is under the control of the creature. And he takes the axe, cuts the tentacle, brings his wife back home, and he throws fire on the creature. The creature does not burn, but he brings his wife back home, and she explains to him, it just drained me of my blood and replaced my blood with swamp water. I'm going to die, and there's nothing you can do about it. And then it did this to your daughter as well. Promise me you're going to kill it. And so he promises he's going to kill it. And the shovel from the cover is what he uses to bury his wife and he is angry and he goes out faces down the monster we get a panel that is recreation of the cover maybe the cover is a recreation of this panel but the creature does not know what to do because it has never had a victim who was willing i mean there is no lure the creature is not luring any ezekiel to him the creature's tentacles reach out for him he swings with his shovel and it breaks and then the tentacle enters his back and picks him up just like it did its other victims and drains him dry of his blood. But then Impy explains to us, and and I'm forgiving of this because I hate it when you have the narrator explain the twist ending, but I'm a little forgiving because it's a wonderful twist ending because Ezekiel had eaten his final meal and then swallowed eight bottles of rat poison. And so the monster as it feeds on Ezekiel is killing itself. And I love this story. Uh, it's, it's dark, it's depressing, um, but there's just something about it. I love it so much that I actually tried to look into see, seeing, you know, who owned the rights to these old horror Charlton stories. And it turns out some company in Toronto or something like that, that I, I don't think I'd have any you know, you know luck trying to get reprint rights or, you know, film rights or whatever, but it's just a really, really good story. And the other thing that I found to be cool was the whole vine thing, you know, that's attached to the back of the people. Um, I wrote a similar story for a comic book series called armor quest, where there's a dragon that has this plant that if you you know possess the plant and the plant's vines and roots will go and they'll enter your heart and the dragon is able to control you by by holding the flower and then when the flower gets destroyed that's when everyone gets you know their their free will back but anyway it was a very similar situation and a similar you know um, mode of operation as far as you know the vine seeks you out or the tentacle seeks you out but anyway I really like the story I liked it a lot. And it's just a really well done short horror story. Now the artist is Jack Abel, who I don't know much about. Um, he's someone I've heard of, and I know that he's a guy. <laughs> I know that he is a uh, one of those kind of, uh, I guess, giants. Honestly, I mean, he did a lot of different things. He he worked on. Uh, a lot of different comics that I've heard of when I'm looking at his credits, but not necessarily a lot of comics that I am familiar with. But that is our artist. I don't know who the writer is. I wish I did, but I don't. So on this, Judgment, the creature. Yes, it's a cool creature and it's really neat. And if you're going to get you know into um, you know, into some nitpicking and say, well, it's, it's, it's not really a human becoming a creature. It, it is, in a way. Uh, the... 
you know, Ezekiel's wife, Mara, becomes a swamp monster. Her blood is replaced with swamp water. Now it kills her and it kills him, but it's kind of cool the way that for the monster, the, I mean, the humans become monsters to the swamp creature. The cover is it poster worthy? You better believe it. For me, anyway, it is. That, I mean, that's why I bought it. Uh, so I like the creature, I like the cover, and I like the content. Third question is, what about the content? And the content is great. It's a good short story. And so, three for three, Haunted, issue number eight, at least the Lure of the Swamp segment of that issue. It's a winner. I really like it. So we're going to move on now with another podcast promo, and then we will get started with uh, the Swamp Things on the Screen segment. He has been challenged to read all the comics he has collected. This podcast will summarize, review, and reminisce about a single comic book issue and the time period somewhat chronologically by release date. He keeps a stack of comics near his bedside for when the time is right. Who is this interesting comic fan and what is the podcast? Hello, my name is Pat. I don't normally do podcasts about the comic books I read, but when I do, I podcast about them on The Longbox Crusade. Listen to it on iTunes, Stitcher, or on theLongboxCrusade.com and check out the Facebook page. Read them all, my friends. Okay, let's talk Marvel's Cinematic Universe. And why are we talking Marvel's Cinematic Universe? Honestly, it's because the Kazar issues and the origin story of Man-Thing made me think of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Why? Well, let's go to... I mean, we, we don't ever see him on the screen, but let's go to some of the stuff that shows us that the Man-Thing as a creature exists in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, one thing is a non-connection connection, and Daniel Butcher will be very, very happy. He is one of my co-hosts on Welcome to Level 7. He'll be very, very happy to remind me that uh, Bobby Morse, who is a character that he apparently really, really likes based on his reactions to the character as we were talking about those episodes, uh, when... Uh, so Mockingbird was in a few episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., one one season, I should say, uh, where she was a, a major force in the season of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Now, for me, it's kind of cool because of her connection to the origin of Man-Thing, especially in these Kazar issues. But she was a part of the science team that was working on what Ted Salas was working on. Now, in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the TV show, nothing is mentioned of her scientific past. In comic books, there will be stories every once in a while that I've, I will see um, where it talks about her being a scientist, and, and it actually uses that as an element of her character, and that comes from the Kazar stuff. And yeah, So anyway, she's in Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., so there's a connection to early Man-Thing stories, but it's not really a connection uh, where it's, well, where it's all connected like Marvel Cinematic Universe is. Here's where it gets a little more interesting for me being connected. You see Maria Hill, who is an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. in Marvel Cinematic Universe, and she's also an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., or has been. She actually was director of S.H.I.E.L.D. in the Marvel Comics for a while. After the events of Captain America, uh, the Winter Soldier, when Black Widow 
just blew everything all up by going before you know a Senate committee and revealing that she had just revealed secrets of you know Shields. She dumped all of Shields' uh, secret data into uh, the internet so that they you know it was available to anyone for anyone to see, which is not a. I mean that that's a problem when you're the United States government. Okay, so she, they bring her before that and in. Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and some of the follow-up episodes there, Maria Hill in one of them is outside of a governmental building. She says she just testified before Congress and she said they're asking her all these questions. For example, who or what is a Man-Thing? So, Man-Thing clearly exists in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but there's one more interesting tie-in that ties in directly to what we're talking about here in this episode, and that is we have Iron Man 3. There's a bunch of characters who are given a treatment to become super-powered, and one of those characters is given the name Ellen Brandt. And she has burns on her face. Now, I'm I'm throwing it out there that it is quite possible that those burns came from, as they did in the comics, the man thing that Maria Hill refers to. Now, this is me just putting it together as a fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and as a fan of the man thing mythos, but it's kind of cool. And so that is our swamp monster on the screen. So the question I ask with Swamp Monsters on the screen is, is it muck-encrusted or is it a mockery? (laughs) And I say this is muck-encrusted. This is really good, great stuff on the screen. And I'm not talking about the live-action man thing here, and I don't know if I ever will. I do wonder if you skip that first scene with the gratuitous nudity stuff and and just jump into the movie itself and and watch it and try and disengage yourself from what you already know about man thing could it be an actually a a good movie i don't want to find out i i don't want to find out and so i'm not going to find out (laughs) not anytime soon so anyway yeah that is our swamp things on the screen and that pretty much wraps things up for this episode of Swamp Things comic book muck monsters bog beasts and muck men and I want to thank you for joining me I have one more thing and it's just it's just my imagination you know I, I was I, I like the hostess Twinkie ads that you find in in comic books and they're you know I, I don't just like them I, I love them now I haven't had really any hostess anything in a long long time but um when I come across those ads, it just makes me remember that drawer in grandma's kitchen where she had Twinkies. And so whenever I would see one of those Twinkie ads, it just would make me think of that. And it just made me feel bad that there never was a, a hostess Twinkie ad featuring swamp thing or man thing. But then I got to imagining, you know, what if, I mean, maybe, maybe man thing isn't enough of an A-list character to carry his own hostess Twinkie ad. But what if, what if there was another character who was more popular back, back in those days, a more popular character who could carry his own Twinkie or cupcake? Or what about hostess 
Apple pie. Hmm. Just imagine with me. Howard the Duck in The Big Bully. <laughs> what seems to be the problem, kid? <laughs> what? A talking duck? Where'd you come from? The short answer? Cleveland. And, and the long answer? Cleveland. Sorry, kid. You asked for it. So, what's the problem here? That big bully stole my hostess fruit pie. It was apple with an apple pie filling. Oh, it was so good, but he stole it from me. And also, he was making fun of me for eating it with a spoon. That's what makes me upset. I just want my fruit pie. <laughs> all right, all right. Stop your crying. I think I might be able to help you. With a little help from my friend. Manny, Manny, come on out of the swamp. Come here, come on. Now, kid, hand me that spoon that you conveniently have right there in your hand. This one? Yeah, yeah, thanks. And now, hand me that pie right there. Oh, hey, I, I didn't notice that one. Perfect, thanks. Couldn't I just... I'll just take this spoon and I'll just use it to scrape a little bit off of my friend Manny here. And then I'm just going to drip a little bit into the pie. There we go. And hey, bully, eat this. It's pie. You'll like it because it's pie. Yummy. Hey, why are you being so nice to me? Give me a pie, huh? I mean, I'll take it. Sure. But, mmm. This pie is great. It's just a little bit of a weird, uh, swampy aftertaste. I don't know. <laughs> Boo! Ah, you scared me there for a minute, monster creature guy. Ugh! Oh, my guts! Oh, They're burning! They're burning up! Ugh. That's right. Whoever knows fear burns at the man-thing's touch. Why? Why would you do this to me? <laughs> it's like a raging storm inside. It's worse than when my dad makes me eat his bean burrito salad. <laughs> And that's how we get revenge in the swamp, kid. <laughs> Come on, Manny. Let's blow this joint. You know, I could have just eaten the other pie, right? The one the one you gave to him. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Fruit Pies. So maybe that's the reason why they didn't do the... Hostess fruit pies with swamp monsters involved, or talking animals for that matter. But anyway, uh, I want to thank you so much for joining me on this journey into the swamp. And I want to thank you again for listening. And if you have any thoughts or any um, you know, complaints or, I don't know, encouragement or whatever, you know, if you have any thoughts at all about these comics we're talking about or any thoughts about comics we could cover... Um, you know the the opening segment, the the main the main segment is going to be longer stories that'll feature more prominent characters. Those backup segments are going to be kind of random stories just from from anywhere. And then of course the the swamp monsters on the screen, which I am not planning to talk about man things, live action movie ever. But I'm just gonna leave it at that. The other thing I'm not planning on really talking about, although I might, I, I do have an idea for how I might talk about this. Because I don't want to just be negative about it. But the, the new Man-Thing series, I I gave it all five issues. I did. I gave I gave them a chance. And it just didn't get better. It, there were some things that happened 
in each issue that made me think, oh, maybe if they follow up on this, it'll get better. And it, it just didn't. And so the, the new Man Thing series, it just was a real downer. And for, for me anyway, I, I wish it had been, I, wish, I just wish it had been something different. But, you know, pair it up against the new Swamp Thing series that we had. Uh, you know, the one from, from last year written by Len Wein. And uh, that was fantastic. And, and I'm not going to get into it here, but it's very, very good. And so I don't know. I, I'm either going to pair that new Swamp Thing series up with um, Steve Gerber's Return to Man-Thing that they uh, published after he died or with the most recent Man-Thing that R.L. Stein did and, and just have a point-counterpoint kind of thing of just why one worked and one didn't. I, I don't know. I, I don't want to spend too much time on the negative. I mean, I do talk negatively about comic books. I mean, that's part of the whole <laughs> That's part of the whole thing, just reading Human Fly. But, um, yeah... I, the new man thing comic series i'm glad for one thing it got me going on this podcast endeavor with the comic book time machine so one last time thank you for listening you want to contact me you can get me at feedback at comicbooktimemachine.com or go to feed, uh, facebook.com slash machine or just go straight to comicbooktimemachine.com and this is the second episode of Swamp Things. If I do a third, which I'm planning to do a third, that's when I'm going to create its own feed on iTunes just so it can be kind of a monthly Swamp Monster comic book podcast. We'll we'll see how that works. But whatever happens, that's, that's in the future. So for now, I just want to say if you're not having fun reading comics, you're doing it wrong. So enjoy what you read, read what you enjoy, and Godspeed.